Genesis 35, 1. Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there, and make an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau your brother. Welcome to Walking Through the Book. I'm Stephen McCrary. I'm Bryant Bales. And today we'd like to talk with you about the Bible. Specifically, we want to talk with you concerning Genesis chapters 35 and 36. Walking Through the Book is about these three things. We want to encourage Bible reading. We want to demonstrate proper and responsible study of the Bible. And we want to emphasize what the text says, no more and no less. And we're certainly thankful for you taking the time to listen to our podcast. We hope it is useful for you in your studies concerning God's will and what he wants for you in your life, which really is the same thing that he wants for all of our lives, which is to glorify him. And uh, it certainly is such a treasure to be able to study the Bible, to have a mind that can think and reason through these things. And we just want to be an encouragement to you from that standpoint that you too can read the Bible and understand what it says. As Paul talks about uh, in the book of Ephesians, that uh, the letter to the Ephesian brethren, that when you read, you may understand. And, uh, and we believe that with our whole hearts, that when we read the Bible, we can understand it. And so we want to do that today. Before we start, we do want to let you know how to get in touch with us. Uh, you can find us on Facebook. If you Google at walking through the book, you can find us that way. Or you can email us at walkingthroughthebook at protonmail.com. Or you can reach us through uh, the website uh, that typically hosts the podcast, northcolumbuschristians.com. That's the website of the church uh, that I work with and worship with in Columbus, Mississippi, which is the North Columbus Church of Christ. Uh, being encourage you to check out our website and see what we have to offer there. We've got uh, a few other podcasts as well as a blog that we maintain. And certainly if you you are ever in the Columbus, Mississippi area for whatever reason, we uh, encourage you to visit with us. Uh, we meet on Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock, and 11 o'clock, and Wednesdays at 6.30 p.m. All right, Brent, uh, you want to kind of go over the flow of the program as you typically do and let everybody know how to get in touch with you? Yeah, so uh, I work with a... A uh, group of saints who meet at uh, Garden City, uh, Georgia, which is actually um, in the greater Savannah area, area, area in eastern Georgia. And uh, a lot of people vacation over here. So if you're ever in town, please look us up and uh, let us know you're going to be in town. Um, if you need a place to stay, the brethren here are always really happy to um, give up a room. Uh, and there's some brethren who have guest rooms. So we'd love to hear from you if you're ever vacationing in this area or passing through. We have a Facebook page at the Garden City Church of Christ is how you'll find the Facebook page. And GardenCityCOC.org is uh, our website. Now, we're working on a new website, so there aren't any um, recent sermons on our old one. 
um, but you'll find the address for the congregation there and some information about us. And the flow of the program, um, if you've listened in before, you've uh, kind of gotten a feel for how we do it. But if it's your first time, uh, just like Stephen said, what we're, what we're striving to do is just really have a simple uh, approach, but also try to show through uh, just reading and abiding in this simple approach consistently how powerful it is to just take the text as it is. So we're going to be starting with just reading Genesis 35 and 36. And after just a read through, we'll make some initial observations and look at some themes after that that might connect to the greater story of Genesis, the Old Testament. Uh, Maybe we'll see some things that connect to Jesus or the New Testament church. Um, And then we'll always try to finish our program with some applications at the conclusion. Genesis 35, the New American Standard Bible. Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and live there, and make an altar there to God, who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods which are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments, and let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods which they had, and the things which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the oak which was near Shechem. As they journeyed, there was a great terror upon the cities which were around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is, Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. He built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried below Bethel under the oak. It was named Alan Bakuth. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram, and he blessed him. God said to him, Your name is Jacob. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. Thus he called him Israel. God also said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come forth from you. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give it to you, and I will give the land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured out a drink offering on it. He also poured oil on it. So Jacob named the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when they were still some distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel began to give birth, and she suffered severe labor. When she was in severe labor, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for now you have another son. It came about as her soul was departing, for she died, that she named him Ben-Oni, but his father called him Benjamin. 
So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is, Bethlehem. Jacob set up a pillar over her grave, that is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. Then Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. It came about while Israel was dwelling in that land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now there were twelve sons of Jacob, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, then Simeon and Levi and Judah and Issachar and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin, and the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maid, Dan and Naphtali, and the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maid, Gad and Asher. These are the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre of Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, an old man of ripe age, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Chapter 36 from the New King James Translation Now this is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan, Adah the daughter of Elon the Hittite, Aholiab, Aholiab, oh man, Aholiabama, Aholiabama. Okay. Now this is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan, Adah the daughter of Elon the Hittite, Aholiabama, the daughter of Ana, the daughter of Zibion the Hivite, and Basemeth, Ishmael's daughter, sister of Nebajoth. Now Adah bore Eliphaz to Esau, and Basemeth bore Ruel, and Aholibama bore Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. These were the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the persons of his household, his cattle, and all his animals, and all his goods which he had gained in the land of Canaan, and went to a country away from the presence of his brother Jacob. For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together, and the land where they were strangers could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. And this is the genealogy of Esau, the father of the Edomites in Mount Seir. These were the names of Esau's sons, Eliphaz, the son of Adah, the wife of Esau, and Ruel, the son of Basemath, the wife of Esau. And the sons of Eliphaz were Taman, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kinaz. Now Timnah was the concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These were the sons of Adah, Esau's wife. These were the sons of Ruel, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mitzah. These were the sons of Basemeth, Esau's wife. These were the sons of Aholibamah, Esau's wife, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion, and she bore to Esau, Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These were the chiefs of the sons of Esau, the sons of Eliphaz. The firstborn son of Esau were Chief Taman, Chief Omar, Chief Zepho, Chief Kenaz, Chief Korah, Chief Gatam, and Chief Amalek. These were the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. They were the sons of Adah. These were the sons of Ruel, Esau's son, Chief Nahath, Chief Zerah, Chief Shammah, and Chief Mitzah. These were the chiefs of Ruel in the land of Edom. These were the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. 
And these were the sons of Aholabama, Esau's wife, Chief Jeosh, Chief Jalam, and Chief Korah. These were the chiefs who descended from Aholabama, Esau's wife, the daughter of Anah. These were the sons of Esau, who is Edom, and these were their chiefs. These were the sons of Seir the Horite, who inhabited the land, Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Anna, Dishan, Ezer, and Dishan. These were the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir, in the land of Edom. And the sons of Lotan were Horah and Himam. Lotan's sister was Timnah. These were the sons of Shabal, Alvin, Manahath, Ebal, Shepho, and Onam. These were the sons of Zibion, both Ajah and Anah. This was the Anah who found the water in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of his father Zibion. These were the children of Anah, Dishon, and Aholabama, the daughter of Anah. These were the sons of Dishon, Himdan, Eshban, Ithran, and Cheran. These were the sons of Ezer, Bilhan, Zavan, and Akan. These were the sons of Dishan, Uz, and Aran. These were the chiefs of the Horites, Chief Lotan, Chief Shobal, Chief Zibion, Chief Anna, Chief Dishan, Chief Ezer, and Chief Dishan. These were the chiefs of the Horites, according to their chiefs in the land of Seir. Now these were the kings who reigned in the land of Edom, before any king reigned over the children of Israel. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, and the name of his city was Danhaba. And when Bela died, Jobab, the son of Zerah of Basra, reigned in his place. When Jobab died, Husham of the land of the Temanites reigned in his place. And when Husham died, Hadad, the son of Bedad, who attacked Midian in the field of Moab, reigned in his place. And the name of his city was Avith. When Hadad died, Samla of Mazrakah reigned in his place. And when Samla died, Saul of Rehoboth by the river reigned in his place. When Saul died, Balhanan, the son of Akbor, reigned in his place. And when Balhanan, the son of Akbor, died, Hadar reigned in his place. And the name of his city was Pau. His wife's name was Mehatabel, the daughter of Matred the daughter of Mezahab. And these were the names of the chiefs of Esau, according to their families and their places, by their names, Chief Timnah, Chief Alva, Chief Jeheth, Chief Aholibama, Chief Ella, Chief Pinan, Chief Kenaz, Chief Taman, Chief Mibzar, Chief Magdiel, and Chief Iram. These were the chiefs of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. Esau was the father of the Edomites. as usual with the initial observation section, we want to look at the uh, things that 
immediately jump out at us, whether in the reading or our preparation for this study together. And we're trying to confine our viewpoint to the chapter itself. And if necessary, the book of Genesis itself, I mean, we can we can uh, reach back to things that, is, that have happened before in Genesis to kind of get a better idea concerning the events that we're talking about. Um, but we don't want to reach too far because that's what the, whole, the the next section is about with the theme section. So, um, Bryant, what are what are some things that really jump out at you uh, in that reading uh, of Genesis 35 and 36? One thing uh, is verse two of chapter 35. Uh, I think it's interesting that um, everyone with Jacob, Jacob was obviously aware that they had been traveling with idols and in some kind of impure condition, whatever that means. Uh, so I'm not sure what that would have looked like or what would have all been involved in that. Um, but it's just interesting that when God tells Jacob specifically to go to Bethel, all of a sudden Jacob is, I guess, more convicted about the condition of everyone there. Um, I don't know. What do, you, what do you think about that? Well, I was just kind of struck with the thought that, you know, is it possible that Jacob found out about the idols that Rachel had taken from her father's house? The text doesn't tell us that. Mm. That's interesting. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, so I'm speculating there. I hope it's help, healthy speculation, but there must've been something that uh, encouraged him to kind of really tell everybody, okay, you know, let's get rid of this stuff. Um, and, uh, and, and, and really this is something that uh, throughout the book of Genesis, we see um, God's people continue to, you know, move farther away from, we've discussed how Abraham, in Ur of the Chaldees, I mean, that was a uh, really a pagan uh, religion that Abraham was leaving at that time. And uh, so obviously Jacob is encouraging his family to, I agree, the, the aspect of purification shows that there was something more than just the fact that Jacob wanted to get rid of these these uh, idols. Yeah, it's, it's like you see heightened conviction. Uh... Mm-hmm throughout this chapter, kind of like on um, 13 and 14, you know, he, uh, he builds a pillar and then he does something that we haven't seen any of his fathers do before actually pour a drink offering on the pillar and then put oil on it. Mm. That seems very like temple or tabernacle esque, you know, like the instructions that come later, you know, given to Moses uh, that you see practiced in the system of the temple and the altar. So it's just kind of interesting. It almost seems like there's uh, uh, a greater awareness here of the implications of approaching God's holiness. So that that's just interesting to, to see here particularly, I guess. And approaching the blessings that God is intending for you to have. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. And I wonder if that kind of shows like the motive that's supposed to be behind these things, because Jacob, it doesn't seem like was doing things just on the basis of lawful requirement, but more on the basis of recognizing the living person of God and the blessings that he's been receiving from this living God who is holy. And that is what's interesting, too, is that he's showing clearly that there was some sort of law. There was some sort of plan to all these things. 
but at the right. same time, it is, yeah. it is, it is, uh, I guess you, to, to, for lack of a better term, it is relational in the sense that this is, Right. This is a relationship right. he's having with God. And so I think what he's doing right. and saying to his family is based upon that relationship. I don't, you know, it's, it certainly is not based upon, uh, you know, a written law that they all received, uh, but he's basing it on the sense of, of, of God's law. Hmm. And for that too, I think related to that, he, he is, he's going through there and, you know, it, it's, Interesting to me that, uh, you know, verse five, the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them and they did not pursue yeah, the sons like. of Jacob and, and right. that protection that he afforded them. We'll, we'll definitely have more to say there in the other sections, but uh, what, do, what do you think about that immediately? You know, so that actually really struck me uh, just a minute ago. I, I think I hadn't paid very much attention before to the fact that it emphasizes that it's the sons of Jacob who were not being pursued. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I, I guess I like, I've, I've read that passage and always just assumed like Jacob and his family are strangers, you know, people might want to attack them or rob them, you know, because they're strangers and they may seem. Is vulnerable. that a reference back to but, chapter 34 where, you know, chapter four, verse 30, you've troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And that's to me, that's very interesting because it seems like this terror was not just something that just kind of happened. It seems like and it's not explicitly stated, but to me, just my opinion is it seems obvious this is something God was doing, that God was putting a terror on the cities. And that's something that you see later God do with his people as well is protect them providentially by creating a sense of fear in others. And we, I just realized this too. Didn't we see that with Laban when God rebuked Laban and kind of gave Laban a terror of um, doing anything harmful against Jacob when he was fleeing? Yes, I think so. I'm trying to recall. Yeah, I would it's when, when uh, God appeared in a dream yes. and said, don't speak anything yes. good or bad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's interesting too, because then it's like, not only is God, and, and this is really interesting, not only is God not rebuking uh, Jacob's sons or Jacob, like God doesn't say anything about chapter 34, but not only that, he's actually protecting them from the consequence of what they've done. Mm-hmm. And that, that I think is very interesting. Very much so. Let's let's get back to that in a second. But I do want to note too that you know just one of the things that I had down the uh, pillar in verse twenty, the pillar of remembrance toward Rachel's grave. Um, you know, it is interesting that that we see that this is a obviously this is an emergency that happens here with her that that this is not something that was intended to be happening. And yet, you know, Jacob takes the time to properly show his respects toward this woman that he dearly, dearly loved. And, uh, you know, we, mm-hmm. we've discussed previously how it seems like Leah was such a good worker and such a good wife, a good godly woman. We've discussed that at least a couple of times so far. And yet she never really had um, the proper kind of attention from Jacob, did she? 
Um, and, and you mentioned how it seems like right. she never gets that love that she so craves. Um, but she, she has her own reward in the sense that, you know, she's buried with, uh, with his own family. Whereas Rachel has her own special place here. And I think again, primarily, I think that's because, uh, they're traveling, they're on the way. Um, right. uh, but, but you know, it, it, it is interesting to see that because I mean, uh, the, the mentioning, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day, which tells you that, you know, Moses writing this, he was, he's telling the people of Israel that, Hey, you can go look at this today. You can go see this today. And even though we may not have that in our time today, it is interesting to see that again, we see that the writers of the Bible are focused on making sure that we know that if we want to find the truth about these things, we can go look for ourselves. Um, these were not authors that were trying to make up stories that everybody would be fooled by. They were, they were telling true accounts that could actually be followed up by others that were living in that day. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does. Yeah. You see that, um, you see that in the new Testament as well with certain events, um, related to Jesus, I think when they're preaching about Jesus. Well, let's get back to, um, you know, what you said earlier about the fact that God was not allowing the sons of Jacob to be punished. And also it seems like he wasn't punishing these other peoples, correct? Yeah. Yeah. And I was, yeah, because I think, I think it's interesting that God obviously shows again, verse 13, he's capable of speaking to them in a personal and direct way. And, you know, the events of chapter 34 are atrocious and shocking. Uh, and yet God chooses to not bring it up. But like you said, to actually continue to encourage Jacob. And can you think of, because it might be there, but can you think of any time where God rebuked Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob in the entire book of Genesis? No, not offhand. I mean, Me either. The, yeah. the basic presentation is that, I'm with you, you know, now that's interesting. Given that too, like you don't see any outright rebellion from any of these people either. Yeah. That, that, that's, so, that's interesting. I think that's, that's really yeah. worth, really worth noting. I mean, that's, that's something to think about too. And, and you know, let's, let's bring that back up in the next section too, because yeah, there's yeah. some other figures we could bring up to consider there, but yeah, that's, that's a very, very, solid point that, you know, and, and I think we need to recognize too, that it, it's not, I don't think it's that God is with these men, no matter what. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. think it's that God made a promise to them and they have upheld the qualifications of that promise being manifested, if that makes sense. And, and, it, it, and I don't mean to, cheapen it to make it look just like a, you know, standardized contract or something silly like that. But I do want to want us to consider and think that, um, you know, there's a reason why God sticks with these men. And, uh, I don't think that he was just doing things just sort of, uh, you know, rough shot or just slip shot and just, well, I'll, I'll, I'll let this guy follow me 
and regardless of what happens, I'm going to be with him. You know, it's, it's that, you know, that God's love we find is unconditional, but his, he does have terms of following him. Cause I mean, again, what's the big difference between Abraham's family and everyone else? Generally, they don't know God. Um, that's not true in every single situation. You do find people that do know God, obviously. Obviously, Melchizedek had a relationship with God. But at the same time, there are others, just like last chapter, where we find that, you know, here are some people that, that really have no clue. And unfortunately, it seems to me, too, that, that down the road, uh, the family of Esau ends up not really having a clue. Um, you know, and, and I think you mentioned before the recording, Bryant, that, you know, it's really interesting. And I, I agree with you that all of these people that are recorded in chapter 36, God took the time to show us all of those people by name and by family. Yeah, it's really interesting. And yet we're going to see they have a pretty bad end as a nation. And there's a specific reason for that that comes actually quite a long time after this, this period of time. You know what I just kind of thought about too, this is totally unrelated to that. Just, just making observations kind of just at random, but uh, I guess kind of like verse two, I'm just kind of progressing off of that thought here for a second. Verse 14. Have we ever seen a drink offering with oil poured on it before either? Have we seen that before with any of these altars that have been made? I don't know if we have, but I could be wrong about that too. I think you'd have to go back and see with Abraham because he, you know, he built a lot of them. Yeah. But um, but I don't recall him pouring oil, oil on them. All right. So apparently this is the only place in Genesis where drink offering is mentioned the only place in Genesis. Hmm. And it's the same Hebrew word used in Leviticus and Numbers for the drink offerings that would have been coupled with uh, sacrifices at the temple tabernacle. Hmm. Now, the reason I, I say that, and um, with, with verse 2, it seems like there's a deeper, more specific understanding of worship and holiness here. And I don't know if it's just that we're getting more details that were known all along, or if Jacob legitimately has a progressively growing understanding of how to approach God compared to his forefathers. Yeah, I'm not sure there's any way to know from the text. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Just one of those things, again, just worth noting and thinking about, you know, because like, huh, drink offering with oil, that is very specific and very much like Leviticus and Numbers. That is very, yeah, and, very specific. And, and this is cheating a little bit, but I mean, you know, there were certainly times where there were options as to what precisely you were going to be offering. Right, right. Um, it, depending on what had happened and what you needed to atone for and, and things such as that. So um, that... uh. It's an interesting point to think about. I mean, where did where did Jacob get that idea? But then at the same point, you could also ask, you know, how did Abel get the idea that we were supposed to sacrifice animals? 
Yeah, I think it's interesting that, you know, verse 10, uh, there's a lot of reaffirming here. You know, like, for instance, uh, we've already we've already seen the 12 sons of Jacob. But then in verse 23 through 26, we get that reaffirmed. You know, we know about Esau, but a lot of things about Esau are reaffirmed. And 10 through 12, I think it's interesting that there's a reaffirming of Jacob's name being changed to Israel. Um, and I, I, I legitimately don't have any thoughts because I know it must be significant that God is telling him again, you know, your name is Israel. I don't know if it's just that Jacob needed it, needed it reaffirmed um, in, in the land that his name would be Israel. Because I think when he wrestled with the angel, that was still outside of the territory of Canaan. So this is now he's at Bethel. He's at the place now that God had told him he would bring him back to. And now God is speaking to him as he promised. And now his name is now Israel. Um, but I'm sure there's more to it that's that's important about that. But just the reaffirming of that, I think, is, is interesting. Along with uh, 11 and 12 promises made to Abraham and Isaac are now being um, renewed as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know... What's interesting, too, he doesn't say anything to Jacob specifically about the, well, uh, I probably should save that, but about the enslavement to come in Egypt, and Mm. which he did say something to Abraham about that. Yeah, that's interesting. But, yeah, there is a physical, and this is another interesting thing, like you said, there is some sort of physical aspect to this in verse 13, then God went up from him in the place where he talked with him. So how does God go up from him? You know, uh, I mean, I, I, I don't know how God was doing all these things. You know, I don't know if there was an angel that he was speaking to specifically, I think in, uh, uh, you know, chapter 23, you have that his angel is speaking to him uh, to stop him from killing Isaac, uh, you know, the messenger there. But, um, yeah, I don't really know exactly how he did this. I don't know how God would go up from somewhere because he's everywhere. I don't I don't quite get that. <laughs> I, I know I'm making a non-point right here, <laughs> but... Uh, uh, you know, just that is something interesting to just sort of uh, think about and consider what that possibly means. So one one other thing, um, it's interesting that uh, Jacob lives so much longer than all the women in his life. Uh, so like Leah, Rachel, Bilhah, Zilpah. I mean, um, let's see, Deborah. Uh, Rebecca's nurse died and then Rachel dies in verse 16 through 21. And like we talked about Leah later dies, but then Jacob just lives on and on for quite some time. And, and that's kind of interesting as well that Jacob and, and he'll tell Pharaoh later that he lived a life that wasn't nearly as long as his father, which verse 28, 180 years. I mean, that's, that's a crazy amount of time, <laughs> you know, even, even for this time frame, you know, they weren't, they weren't living that, that long normally, you know, this wasn't like the right. times of Abraham and beforehand. Yeah. I mean, in, in Isaac himself, 100, 180 years, uh, 
you know, I, I love what it says about Isaac there too. Being old and full of days is my translation. Um, yeah. And, and that says, Mine says a ripe age. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think a similar statement is made with, uh, with Abraham. If I go back to that, because, um, let's see, what chapter was that? 25. Okay. Because it is interesting to look and see all the different ways that, you know, God essentially says goodbye in his text to. Yeah, 25, 7, and 8. To these men that, uh, you know, yeah, he died in a good old age, an old man and full of years. Um, and was gathered to his people. You know, I, I think we talked about in that passage, the possibility that, that that's not truly talking about the fact that he was gathered to uh, his people in burial, but that he was gathered right. to his people spiritually. Uh, because, right. you know, Hebrews talks about the, the fact that he looked for, he was one of those who looked for a kingdom that was not made with hands. Uh, right. So, I, and I'm convinced that, that's that's the same thing that Isaac's looking for. It's it's interesting as well that you know God didn't just throw Isaac away because he was now following Jacob. You know, like it right. wasn't like you know God's been moving along with with Jacob and then kind of forgets about Isaac. You know, um, like it, it seems inferred that he was 180 years because God was the one preserving him. I mean, that's just mm. in, an insane age. Right, right. And I think it's interesting that Isaac did not perish until he met with Jacob again. And so it could be that God was preserving Isaac until the time when he would see his his son of promise again. Right. Yeah, what a, what a blessing that was for Jacob to be able to return to his yeah. father before he died. Really great. And Esau participates in the burial. Yeah, I think that's that's pretty awesome. Yeah. So again, in the theme section, we want to reach beyond the text that we've read to pull in threads from other places and uh, other times in terms of the scriptures. And uh, as we talked about beforehand, we talked a little bit about the fact that Jacob is calling upon his house essentially to be cleansed. And I want us to note something. Uh, it tells us, in verse four, they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears, and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree, which was by Shechem. Jacob doesn't burn them, but he hides them away and makes sure no one knows where they are. I wonder if anybody found those eventually. <laughs> um, but, but regardless, we know that throughout Israel's history, the people always had trouble with going to these foreign gods. Um, but I do want to appreciate on this point in this chapter that obviously it seems to me that Rachel finally got rid of the foreign gods that she took from her father's house. 
Hmm. I mean, would you agree with me on that? Yeah, that that actually hadn't thought about that, but that's a great point. So, I mean, it's it's good to see that before Rachel dies. Um, that that you know, and again, to discuss about these women, you know, Rachel again is along with him on this trip, and again, very faithful to him as a as a wife uh, to her husband, and uh, just a very very good example. At this point, um, <clears throat> the fact that she dies in childbirth, of course, is very uh, must have been difficult to deal with. Um, although I don't know, maybe I'm making more of the text than I should. But I mean, so Rachel died, and then it talked about it was hard labor. I mean, what do you think about that? Am I am I stretching to say that and make that? Stretching, uh, stretching what exactly? Well, I mean, to, to say that the hard labor actually led to Rachel's death. Oh, I, I, I've always assumed that that's why that said is because that's the direct cause. Okay. Okay. Well, I just want to make sure we we're on the same page there. I don't want to debate mm-hmm. you about it. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but, but just to kind of go back to, to, uh, Jacob making sure his house is basically cleansed. He's going back to his homeland and uh, you know, God gives them safe passage through a lot of places that probably could have housed some pretty bad enemies. And, uh, and it makes me think too about how, you know, I just happened to before the recording be looking at a map of uh uh, where Edom was and the kingdoms that were around Israel down the road. I mean, this is during the period of the divided kingdom, but you know, they really were surrounded by people that were fairly hostile to them. Um, and especially, especially in that time. Um, but I think even all through, through their history, there was a lot of this uh, influence of these foreign places, these foreign kingdoms, these foreign gods, um, you know, places like eventually Ammon and of course the Moabites, uh, the Philistines and generally, and we'll talk more about this in a minute, but the, the kingdom of Edom to the South, generally they were not the best of friends as far as nations go. And, uh, there's just something, to be said here because the constant stream throughout all of Israel's history is for, is God telling Israel to do the same thing that Jacob is telling his family to do here, you know, get rid of all these things. Um, and you know, he has this purpose. We're going to go to Bethel. I'll make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way that I've gone. Um, the fact that, I'm going to lead my family in this way. That's, that's very powerful. And it's certainly something that we want to take notice of. What, what do you think about Brian, the significance? Cause you, you brought this up before the recording in verse 19, that Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath. That is Bethlehem. Well, uh, Bethlehem certainly has a lot of significance in scripture. Um, that becomes the city of David, uh, becomes the city where Jesus is born. And there's a lot of um, 
there's just a lot of things about Bethlehem that seem to embody what happens here. Um, so you're talking about before the podcast for listeners, I was, I was mentioning that my dad and I, uh, a couple of years ago had a conversation about how so many events later where you see Bethlehem kind of, uh, share in the principle of what happens here, both with sorrow, but also with, um, leading to the kind of the, the depth of that second name. Cause uh, Benjamin is named Ben Oni first, and then he's called Benjamin second. And he's the only son of Israel that is given two separate names. Um, and I, I think about like, you know, not just the city Bethlehem, but, you know, Jesus himself was a son of sorrow in many ways. Um, but then he was the son of the right hand in another way. Um, so I think there's just a lot of things that may kind of thread together here with this in, in kind of a, a fascinating foreshadowing way. But uh, kind of to continue on what I was saying to the to the listeners a second ago, uh, that conversation I had with my dad where we um, had a really interesting conversation about that. Since that was so long ago, I don't remember exactly how we connected some of those things. But I just I, I remember that there were a lot of really um surprising and incredible connections back to this. And I, I wish I could remember better if I, if I thought a lot about it and, and talked to him about it, there may be some things that we could pull back up and remember, but to at least just put it out there that the, the, the renaming of Benjamin, this happening on the way to Bethlehem, the fact that Benjamin was renamed son of my right hand from son of my sorrow, all of those things just seem to have a, a tie together in their significance. Um, and I think that's kind of the reason why there's a, a quotation that Matthew pulls. And I guess I, I will at least mention this uh, in Matthew chapter two, um, Matthew chapter uh, two, verse 18. Um, there's uh, a verse quoted in Jeremiah where uh, Herod was killing the children from two years old and under in the territory where, where Jesus was born. Um, and the verse quoted is Jeremiah thirty one fifteen, and that may be another connection back to this. But but long story short, there's there's probably some significance to those things that uh, would be more interesting, I think, to spend more time looking into. You know, one thing I just thought about, um, the, uh, the midwife that spoke to Rachel in verse 17 says, do not fear. You will have this son also. Um, similar statement, I think from the angel to Mary in Luke one and verse 30, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, um, Hmm. that you will have this son, right? And, uh, you'll conceive in your womb, bring forth a son, shall call his name Jesus. Uh, so uh, just some similarities there. Yeah. Interesting to consider mm. a lot of different ways you could take that yeah. for sure. So you have Israel, literally Israel, the Israel, uh, in the land that has been promised to his fathers. And, uh, and, you know, I wonder why does it he talk about why, why do you think he mentions in verse 22 when Israel dwelt in that land that Reuben 
went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. Mm. What, you know, what can we take from that? Mm. That's interesting. I, I know one major thing is the loss of uh, the blessing. Mm-hmm. You know, since there were... 12- to Reuben. Yes, that's right. You know, because there's 12 kids now, so it's like the great anticipation is, well, I mean, there's been kind of a blessing here handed down from child to child. So, you know, who's that mm-hmm. going to, who's that going to go to? And, think, and already it's been proven with Jacob that it doesn't just go to the eldest. Right. Right. Yeah. Necessarily. Right. And it's really interesting because by the end of Genesis, you know, Joseph gets a double portion blessing, which is a big deal, but kind of a, a shocker in Genesis 49, I guess I'll even just turn there in my Bible. Uh, there's a really important blessing that gets passed over Reuben. And specifically in verse four, Genesis 49 says, uncontrolled as water, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. So this, this had incredible mm-hmm. consequence because the, the, the blessing that, was preeminent gets passed over Reuben because of what he did. And then yeah. in verse five and six, Simeon and Levi, the next in line, they both lose the preeminent blessing as well because of what they did in Genesis 34. Right. And so it passes on then to verse eight, Judah and verse 10 is, I think, one of the clearest messianic promises outside of Genesis chapter three, uh, verse 15, where it's said to Satan, you shall bruise his heel, but he shall bruise your head. Uh, verse 10 says the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor shall the ruler staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes and to him shall be the obedience of the people's. He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. So Judah earns that blessing that eventually will lead to the Messiah. And I think the establishment of Judah is the the capital for the city, Jerusalem and the temple really providentially all worked out as it did because of the events here. And so I think it is interesting that in verse 22, you get this, this detail that actually has this, this astonishingly huge consequence that threads through the history of the nation. The most amazing part of that messianic prophecy is that there's no other person or thing that fulfills that, but Jesus. Yeah. Right. I mean, when you think about it, like the nation itself, Judah was taken away into Babylon, you know, and that must have shattered so many of the Jews' minds at that time. Right. And I, I don't mean, we're, we're kind of off topic here, but I mean, that is pretty fantastic because, you know, what are, what are we dealing with in, in these chapters? Well, we're dealing with God's promises coming to fruition and we're talking about his further promises down the road. And, uh, you know, this promise, uh, and I think this is, this may have been why you had, many Jews that just basically made up their minds after the exile that, you know, God's abandoned us. Um, we're, you know, he's, he's no longer, we're no longer his people or there's something, there's something off there. Um, 
and of course the faith will held true regardless, but, um, yeah, very, very good point. Very, very good points all. And we take the time to restate the 12 sons of Jacob here mm. to basically, uh, again, kind of group everything together and tell us, okay, this is what's going on. Remember these guys. And then, uh, of course, Isaac, uh, dying at Mamre, 180 years. And we've already kind of discussed that. Is there anything else that you want to tie into that particular moment or anything out of verse, uh, excuse me, chapter 35 that you might want to pull together there? Yeah. So back in verse 11 and 12, I mean, Jacob's, Jacob's, labor is over from this point forward. It's, the story is about to transition into Joseph and mm-hmm. it'll pick back up on Jacob much later when he's brought, uh, when he's, well, I mean, you're going to see uh, Jacob distressed over what his brothers say happened to Joseph, but then you'll see Jacob taken into Egypt and that'll pick up in the later chapters, like what we just read in 49, where he's comforted again concerning his son that he thought was, was dead. But and I, yeah. I bring all that up to say, all God says here, and that this is this is just the end of it for wh- what Jacob needed to hear right now. I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation, a company of nations, shall come from you, and kings shall come forth from you. The land which I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I, gi- I will give it to you, and I will give the land to your descendants after you. So, and I just mean to point out, it's interesting that all God says is now, now that you're here, be fruitful and multiply. Mm-hmm. that's that's the charge that was was made so that he could be fruitful to become a company of peoples and then later enter into Egypt as a company of people and then in Egypt continue to become a nation. And so I, I think it's interesting that God doesn't tell him to go anywhere else. He doesn't tell him to wander around anymore. He doesn't mm-hmm. give him any clear instruction at all besides just, you know what, you're here. You just need to be fruitful and multiply now because I'm going to finish this this uh, this promise and it's interesting that God does the work, you know, God providentially mm-hmm. um, works it out at the end of Genesis to where Joseph tells his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And so even Joseph perceives that it's by the hand, the providence of God, that the events turn into what they do through the, uh, through the end of the book. And so God's just simply going to fulfill his promise. And all Jacob needs to do is, is simply be fruitful. It's it's the same situation essentially when the Israelites inherited the land of Canaan after their enslavement, right? Sure. I mean, you know, be here, do your thing, increase, you know, um, you know, similar thing. I mean, I, I I keep thinking about the statement that you made once. And I think we discussed this on the podcast once. How you know, once Solomon's temple was built, there really was nothing else to. Uh, accomplish or do for the people except to remain faithful mm-hmm. and continue to do those things in, in the same sense, the church today. Um, what does Paul tell the Thessalonians? We know about your love, but we want you to abound more and more. Um, and, and so there, there is this aspect where you maintain, but you increase while you maintain. It's just right. something, something to really think about An Interesting balance there. Yeah. Cause I think there's, there's quite a bit within the, the command to be fruitful and multiply 
like I think it's it's easy to think about that as just procreate, you know, just have some kids right. and spread your kids around. But I think uh, when you really think about what God is really charging and looking for, what does it really mean to be fruitful from God's perspective? What does it really mm-hmm. mean to be fruitful? And what is God really hoping multiplies? Does God want just people to multiply? I think really within this command is is teaching. It's training in righteousness. I think there's there's a lot of work to be done within being fruitful and multiplying because I think what God really wants multiplied are people after his image who respect and revere and and are thankful for the covenant that are the, the covenant that's exclusively given uh, to Jacob here. So so I think there's 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 a lot that would involve um, an act of reverence on Jacob's part here. He only has one more son after what God says here. Mm. So unless you want to just zero in on that and just recognize, okay, God is telling him to be fruitful and multiply. So he went and had Benjamin. Okay. <laughs> I would, I would understand that. And that makes some sense, but there's always a grander thing to be seen and appreciated right. in the commands in the statutes uh, that God tells his people. Right. So what do we have to say about chapter 36? I mean, you know, there's when we get to large genealogies like this, I always hit maybe a brick wall as far as specifically what to talk about. But I do want to generally talk about sort of the fate. I don't use that word strongly there because uh, maybe I shouldn't even use that word, but sort of the destiny, the ways that things work out for the nation of Edom. And I want us to note again that Esau is distinguished between the nation itself. Now, we are told, I mean, one interesting thing about chapter 36 that I saw, the number of times that we see that Esau was the father of the Edomites. Esau is Edom. You know, all. You know, how many times does that happen? At least three times maybe four or five. Um, and, and so there is this emphasis on this is what this nation is. And I, I may have mentioned this on this podcast before as well, but it's really interesting to me that the Edomites were considered for uh, a long, long time to be inventions of the Bible. You know, people a uh, hundred, you know, hundred or so years ago, uh, higher critics critics would try to say that Edomites were just a made up people. They, di- they didn't exist, but it turns out they found the stone city of the Edomites. They lived literally in the cleft of a mountain. And uh, you know, so it's really interesting to see that from an evidences perspective, but you know, as you, as we're saying, you know, God is memorializing these people here. We've got these names, which are so hard to pronounce, <laughs> at least for me. Um, and and we've got them multiple times to, I think, emphasize that, that God knows who these all are. He cares for them. And in the same sense that the promise was made to Esau, that Esau would indeed become a great nation. And so, again, we have the promises of God being shown and being uh, manifested here. And uh, it's just a really encouraging thing to know that that whoever I am and wherever I am, God knows me. God knows who I am. 
Yeah, and something interesting in verse seven. That's this. That's almost like word for word, chapter thirteen, verse six, where Lot and Abraham had to part from each other because yeah. uh, yep. their property was too great. You know, the land could not sustain them where they were because of their livestock. So that's that's kind of interesting. And it's, it's interesting that um, Lot's genealogy is not nearly as detailed. Um, I mean, Lot's is uh, not really detailed at all. It just kind of mentions the Moabites, if I remember correctly. And we don't really get a, a huge mm-hmm. genealogy like chapter 36. So so it is interesting. It, like this, this goes deep, you know, like this goes not just mm-hmm. into Esau's descendants, but then verse 20, the sons of Seir. So it even goes into the people who were there and the names of people who were there before Esau got there. Yeah. I was going to say too, that, um, you know, also you think about the alternative of this, there, there are things that, that, uh, really kind of, I'm trying to think of the word. There are three things that really sort of muddle this picture too, because you think about it, this is almost like the alternate possibility. Like if Edom, if Esau had held on to his birthright and not sold it, and uh, you know, mm-hmm. then this would have been the children of, of of children of Esau. Would Esau have been Israel? You know, again, it you've got this brother thing going on in the sense that Jacob has a different name. He's called Israel. Esau has a different name too. His, his name is Edom. Would it, would it have been the children of Edom? I don't even know. You know, uh, uh, that's, that's in the mind of God possibly. Um, but regardless, there is that sadness to it still, uh, on the individual Esau that he, that he missed out on these things, but he did make it right. He's on a good basis with his brother. This is the last time we see Esau anywhere, if I if I understand correctly, himself as an individual. Now, there's another aspect to the nation of Edom that we want to appreciate because you go read the book of Obadiah and you find the time hundreds of years after this that Edom himself is, you know, that that nation is is puffed up and does not help Israel, and in fact teams up with Israel's enemies against her, against the nation. Um, the statement is made, I could read any of the verses in Esau, but in, excuse me, in Obadiah, but in Obadiah 6, Oh, how Esau shall be searched out, how his hidden treasure shall be sought after. All the men in your confederacy shall force you to the border. The men at peace with you shall deceive you and prevail against you. Those who eat your bread shall lay a trap for you. No one is aware of it. Will I not in that day, says the Lord, even destroy the wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountains of Esau? Then your mighty men, O Taman, shall be dismayed to the end that everyone from the mountains of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. See there in verse nine, you know, didn't, wasn't one of the sons named Taman, Teman? Mm. I'd have to look back through this. Yeah, the Temanites, the land of the Temanites. Verse, verse 34. Uh, so, so God in that book, he, he is basically crying out against Esau. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know, just 
something to think about there. It, it all comes down to how they behaved as a nation. And we recognize, too, that God will judge nations on a grand scale, but also on the Day of Judgment, he ultimately, as we understand in, in the New Testament, I'm going to be called up as an individual, essentially, to stand before Christ and, uh, and, and before the judgment seat of Christ, as the book of Romans talks about. And so th- there are things here to recognize and see that, that even though God records the names of all these people, uh, there came a time down the road where that nation was not faithful to God in their way. Um, now, whether they were ever truly faithful to God, I mean, I don't know. Uh, but it, it certainly seems to me that Esau and Jacob are in a good uh, in a good relationship right now. Yeah, it's interesting, too. It doesn't seem like, and maybe this attests to, for instance, Esau giving up his birthright easily. Um, I don't know. I just get the sense that Esau didn't really train his descendants to know the Lord, you know? Like, I just, I don't get the sense. Like, I know God was, because of the covenant, he was working with Jacob much more intimately and directly. So, for instance, like, him understanding to purify and change garments, you know, maybe maybe some of that was... um because of how God was more intimately engaged, but still, you know, Esau was the son of his father, Isaac. And so he would have had so much opportunity to know the Lord in very specific ways. And, and so it, I just think it is interesting and, and maybe something telling about the, 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 um, the blessing following Israel specifically is you just, it just seems like, in verse in chapter 36 maybe this is a point in this maybe not but Sierra had chiefs and Edom had chiefs and it just kind of blends together it's like where does Edom end and Sierra begin I mean it's it's kind of hard to tell you know and so they just kind of blend they just kind of blend together actually in chapter 36 whereas Israel is quite distinct, you know? Um, so I think that that might be a, a point in that chapter. And again, one of the major themes of Genesis seems to be the separation distinction between right. Right, those right, right, who right. are focused on calling on the name of the Lord yes. and those who are wrapped up in worldly affairs. Oh, that's such a good point, you know, because like God wants us to be interested in being holy, being distinct and set apart and it does just doesn't seem like esau was interested in that aspect of the covenant you remember he had taken some wives from canaan earlier and his parents were grieved by that and and then he took some wives from his relatives after that but was that really because esau was truly interested in being distinct Mm -hmm. or was it because he wanted to please his parents you know (laughs) right 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 whereas Israel was interested in the distinctiveness of God's mm-hmm. holiness. Um, and just like you see in chapter 35, when God, when God said, you know, go make the Psalter in Bethel by inference, Jacob understood by implication, we need to redistinguish ourselves now as a holy mm-hmm. people. And you see that also with the history of Israel. 
them losing interest in their distinguishment among the nations is what was their downfall. And God and God eventually had to end the nation entirely because of the seed that planted in the nation. Well, you know, I, the, the thing that just keeps hitting me right now is how many of these people there are that are just named chief. <laughs> and so, I mean, it's like, yeah. I mean, yeah. Was that their society? Were they just, I mean, were they just centered on who was the leader and, and, you know, the leaders of their people and the importance of, of having that leadership? Uh, you know, there's something to be said there and, uh, yeah, maybe we'll get a little bit into that next, next section. Here we have our application section, and uh, of course, we want to focus in on the lessons that we learned from this. What? How do I use this to be a better servant to the Lord? How do I look at this and really pull from this? Sometimes with a book like Genesis, it can be kind of challenging because sometimes it feels like you can't figure out who the good guy is and who the bad guy is. Um, but the wonderful thing is in these two chapters, we have some really good examples, uh, concerning, uh, faithfulness to God, primarily from Jacob, um, but also from others like Rachel, uh, you know, number one, of course, is to be the leader of your family in the way that Jacob is. And he's telling them clearly, put away the foreign gods that are among you. I wonder how many of us if we really understand what foreign gods are and what that means today, what is the state of our families and our households? I know most of us with humility would say, well, I'm, I'm not doing as good as I ought to be. And, uh, Hey, I understand that <laughs> we all, we all need that humility, but at the same time, we need to have the courage and boldness to step up and say, you know, if there's something idolatrous going on in my home, I need to get that out of there. And, uh, I need to basically expect the rest of my family to go along with that and to get the idols out. And of course, we're not just talking, as I said, we're not just talking about, uh, physical idols when we're, when we're applying these things. And, uh, so not only is he interested in them putting away the foreign gods, but to purify themselves. I'm thinking about, the idea of, you know, uh, flee youthful lusts, but, you know, follow after good things and seek righteousness. Um, the things that we see in the New Testament, that it's not enough just to put away the bad things. You have to be pursuing the good things and uh, and making all those things right. I think there's a couple things on that. Um, related to holiness, um, wanting to conform to whatever draws us closer to God's divine nature, uh, wanting to fit into the mold of his nature. You know, like you just mentioned, pure, purifying and changing garments, you know, because ultimately we need to change our garments. Um, 
and God wants us to change our garments. You know, in Galatians chapter 3, Galatians chapter 3, verse 27, those who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And in Zechariah, there's an interesting vision Zechariah has. Uh, I can turn there really quick. In uh, Zechariah chapter 3, you know, uh, there's a high priest Joshua in verse 3, clothed in filthy garments, standing before the angels. He spoke and said to those who were standing before him, saying, Remove the filthy garments from him. Again, he said, See, I've taken your iniquity away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. Then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and put and clothed him with garments while the angel of the Lord was standing by. And you see that theme a lot, like the um, prodigal son, Luke 15. They put new garments on the prodigal son. Um, you know, and I think about other verses as well, where we're commanded to clothe ourselves with humility. And, and so there, there's, it's almost like there there is a new clothing that we put on when we approach God. That directly relates to purity, um, and I think there's there's specific applications in that. You know, obviously baptism, but you know, attitude, heart, gratitude, and and just seeing my need uh, to be completely changed, like uh, Joshua in that vision in Zechariah. Um, so I think there are some really interesting uh, New Testament applications to make from that. Also, how about um, the fact that God promises and follows up with the fact that, you know, he's telling him to be fruitful and multiply the land, which I gave Abraham and Isaac, I give to you, you know, and then we see down the way that as they, uh, go through, um, let's see. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. A little farther earlier in verse five. Um, the fact that, okay, strike that, reverse it. Um, verse one, he tells him to go to Bethel and dwell there. There's no question that in Jacob's mind that they're going to go there, right? If Jacob was ever concerned about the people they were going to be passing through or, you know, the lands they were going to be passing through on the journey, he doesn't show it. And that's really interesting to me too. And, and, and it tells us too, again, in verse five, the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them. So any kind of enemies they might've had, God protects them. And there's a great application there that we need to know Mm -hmm. that God can fight our battles today. And that any enemies that we think that we might have imagined or otherwise, um, you know, if we trust in God, all that's not really going to matter. So many times, even in churches, we get into uh, political problems about, you know, what someone thinks about this or how someone is offended at that. When really, we just need to think about the fact that, you know, are we glorifying God? Are we doing the right thing? Let's get back to the word. Let's not try to focus on the opinions or thoughts of people within the church to guide us through these things, but to consider the book and understand what God says and, and hold to that in the way that it seems that Jacob did. Yeah. And speaking of holding things, I've got one more application. 
is the need to be interested in holding to God's holiness. Um, Because being distinct is challenging. And it does demand, like you were just saying, it demands that I'm willing to put my confidence in God protecting me. Because oftentimes being holy puts me actually in a a vulnerable position uh, where I can be attacked or will be persecuted or will just struggle with being distinct in very obvious and difficult uh, ways that demand endurance. And we just need to see God like Jacob did, you know, like he saw God in a very personal way. He saw God as his deliverer, his provider. He saw God as someone who exalted him from a low position who had been merciful to him and faithful Um, And I think about how that helps us endure the difficulties of taking stands on things that are very unpopular. Um, And I mentioned baptism a minute ago, and, you know, it can be difficult having um, a view of salvation that is clearly taught in Scripture that uh, most no one else holds to outside of um, those few who are faithful. I think about maybe more difficult visible things like modesty Uh, which is a challenge not just for women, but for men as well, and not looking the same as other people, um, not talking the same as other people, um, being kind in ways that are very difficult, being meek and gentle and lowly and honest, uh, even when it's difficult. And I think 1 Peter specifically talks about the blessedness of continuing to do what is good. So in 1 Peter 1, you know, it talks about not being conformed in verse 14 uh, to the world or to our lusts. And verse 15 mentions we need to be holy in all our behavior because in verse 16, you shall be holy for I am holy. Um, And we're exhorted right after that in 1 Peter to recognize how precious we are to God, the value that God places on us, that seen in the value God placed on his son. Um, But look at, 1 Peter 2, verse 19, it says, For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrow when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if, when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if, when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. And so that's that's a challenge for me. You know, it's a challenge for me. Um, it's difficult. It's difficult to stick out. Um, it's difficult to actually bring up things and say things that will put you in an immediately unpopular position if you say it, especially if it's needful for the person in a way that will probably convict them of something they're doing wrong or um, thinking wrong or believing wrong. Um, and so just anyway, the, the main point is the blessing of, of being drawn to God's holiness, even when it's hard, I think is something important we learn here. I like the thought that, you know, in all my years, God's going to remember me. Um, you know, I'm just thinking about Isaac's mm-hmm. death and how, you know, again, I, I look at all these times where God says goodbye to these servants of his, but, but it's not really goodbye, is it? He's just recording for us the fact that, you know, and, and it's the last time we see him in the text there. And and I I can't help but be drawn so much to Isaac. I don't know why, but I just like the fact that mm. 
we don't have very much of Isaac, but what we do have of Isaac is is generally really good. Of course, we've got some character flaws that we could talk about and things such as that. Yeah. But again, this is a book of real people that existed. You know, these are not mighty men. These are not heroes that just, you know. Uh, so, so we recognize that and we see that even, you know, I mentioned the mighty men, even David's mighty men were pretty uh, tough group sometimes. So, you know, uh, that, I think that's another lesson there is that, you know, be faithful to God all through your life. Don't, don't get to any point where you think that you can hang in the hat and just say, well, I've done enough for nobody wants to listen to me anymore. Um, you know, find something that you can do. And there's always something you can do in any part of your life. I really, I really truly believe that. So I was about to ask too, um, Brian, do we have anything to say about Esau that we haven't already said in this podcast? Well, it it is interesting that God still made Esau a great nation that endured for an extremely long time a very relevant nation and even giving Esau the power to hurt Jacob in the long run. Uh, just interesting. Yeah. And I have, I have a specific passage to share about that too. Uh, Deuteronomy two twelve, which you mentioned before the uh, podcast recording, uh, the, it says there, the Horites formerly dwelt in Seir, but the descendants of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and dwelt in their place, just as Israel did to the land of their possession, which yeah. the Lord gave them. So that's really interesting that, you know, God fulfilled all his promises. He got, he, he doesn't just fulfill his promises to Israel. He fulfills his promises about Esau as well in much the same way. And that's just really, really fascinating yeah. to me. Yeah. It's incredible. You know, and, and how long, how long did Edom exist as a nation in their mountain territory? Do you know? Oh, I have no idea. I would, you know, I would suggest that it's at least, you know, six or 700 years. I mean, it, it would have been, from what I've read and heard, it would have been very, very hard to take that place. Um, because you would be, you would be starting basically, uh, from one side of the crevice to the other, and it would be very easy for people to wipe you out. I mean, that's just been my general impressions from the things I've heard concerning Edom and, and where they were there in, in, in that mountain. So, Well, think about this. The Exodus happened about 1447 BC, mm-hmm. and Judah fell in, well, Jerusalem. Jerusalem fell by Babylon in about 586 BC. So that's about a thousand years right there. Mm-hmm. And I believe Edom was a nation the entire time. So that's 1,000 years. And then you factor in 400, maybe not 400, let's say, let's say 350. So you have over a thousand years, potentially, Edom was a nation. Yeah. Imagine how powerful a people could be with that that long of a time not having anyone make war with you or disturb you at all. Mm. Um, that's just really interesting how powerful they may have been. Yeah. I mean, when you live in a mountain, I would imagine a mountain is pretty easy to defend if you know what you're yeah. doing. So yeah, very, very well said. 
And so the fact that God will even bless those who, you know, in his grace, that's really, that is God's grace, isn't it? You know, you didn't appreciate something and that, that, that helps me out so much because, you know, I think we can all consider times in our lives that, you know, maybe people in our lives that we didn't appreciate as much and who are not here now, uh, or, or moments in our lives that maybe we didn't make the right kind of, uh, use of, you know, for God's glory. Um, you know, when we think back at that, we need to be careful that we don't become consumed by regret. And even when you think about Esau, the warning in the book of Hebrews about Esau, about, you know, becoming wrapped up in bitterness like Esau was. I mean, we've already shared that passage on this, on this uh, podcast. So I don't want to go back into it again, but I mean, that should be a great lesson to us. Don't get wrapped up into past failures. Um, move forward uh, with God and work to be faithful to him. And, you know, he's going to bless you regardless that his grace covers everything that you've done wrong. Uh, we just need to be willing to confess right. all of the things that we've done wrong to him so that we can we can stand in him and being cleansed and being righteous. Well, again, we thank you so much for listening to Walking Through the Book today. We hope that it has been beneficial for you. As always, Brian, thank you so much for your time. Always so encouraging to get to do this. All right, man. Okay, well, next time, Lord willing, we'll be going into uh, Genesis 37, a whole new chapter of the book. Um, And I don't mean just a whole new chapter by itself, but a whole different division of the book, I would say. And so we look forward to being with you for that. Until then, study well, be lights to God's glory. The music on this podcast is provided courtesy of Symphonia. Visit their website at symphonia.com. Walking Through the Book is created and promoted with the support of the North Columbus Church of Christ in Columbus, Mississippi. Find out more at northcolumbuschristians.com. The website of the Garden City Church of Christ in Savannah, Georgia is gardencitycoc.org.